Hi, my name is Grant, and I'm a recovering lunatic. Um, before, before I introduce tonight's Alateen speaker, I'd like to um, briefly explain the Alateen program to you all. Um, as many of you know, the Alateen program is a fellowship of young people whose lives have been affected by alcoholism in a family member or close friend. That's a direct quote, actually. But what a lot of people don't really see about Alateen is that it goes a little bit deeper than having a parent or an uncle or a grandparent or a best friend that's an alcoholic. It doesn't help us cope with their disease. It really helps us to find a new way of living our lives. Um, when I said I was a recovering lunatic, I meant it with all of my heart. Um, I look at my behavior now, my behavior before, and it's almost as profound as the alcoholics in my family. It's almost as profound as that change. Um, one thing I would like to share with you, there is a meeting tomorrow, Allergy meeting, it's from 9 to 10 in the Allergy room, that is the conference room T. They stuck us pretty far away from everybody else, probably so they wouldn't disturb anyone. It's, it's on the first floor in the uh, east wing. It's called Life After Alatine. I would like to invite any Alanon members who have went through Alatine and now have quote unquote graduated to Alanon, or any ACOA members, or pretty much anybody who has been through a program and has gone through a change similar to that. I'd like to invite anyone down there. It's going to be kind of an open discussion. Not necessarily an open talk, not a closed meeting, just an open discussion. And I think we can learn a lot from each other there. Right now, I would like to introduce someone who is going to talk a lot about the program of Alateen. He is an incredible person, and he's one of my very good friends, um, Mr. Dan B. from Michigan. Hi, I'm Dan, um, and I am uh, a member of the International Kids of Alateen. I'm 18 years old, and uh, my first convention was uh, nine years ago at Lexington, Kentucky, I believe. And uh, I was nine years old, and at that point in time, there were about 18 kids in the whole entire group. Um, it was really, it was really easy for me to open up to these kids. It was great. It was like incredible because here I could like relate with people who uh, are in the same circumstances as I was, uh, who understood just problems that I was going through. Um, it might have been just uh, a relationship. It might have been a fight with my brother. It might have been something really stupid, but Alateen was there nine years ago when I started IDAA. Um, as I said, there was like 15 to 18 kids in the group. And now I'm like more than happy to announce there's over 200 kids in the Alidude um, program in the Alateen. And I think that's like an incredible achievement for all of us. It really amazed me how much... Uh, these kids, I, I'm, I direct all the Alidude programs, like uh, like 
just the meeting part, not the games and activities. And you might not think your kid, you know, opens up too much, uh, would want to talk about this. Uh, they talk a lot, uh, a lot. You know, it, it's not just your basic, uh, you know, you know, I hate Randy or whatever kid they're talking about. They really open up. Tell, they tell what's on their mind. They are learning something now at this age that I learned at a really late age that this program is not to, t to talk about the, al uh, the alcoholic in the family, it's to talk about themselves. And that took me a long time because I thought, you know, I came in nine years ago thinking I had to talk about my dad the whole time. Well, I was five years old when my dad was drinking, you know, so that was a long time ago. Um, my family. This is the beginning. This is how it all started. Uh, my family was the, you know, your your normal, average, basic, uh, dysfunctional family. <laughs> really, really simple. You know, uh, we have three. My mom had three boys, um, and I am the youngest. Uh, we have Patrick, John, and then little Danny, the baby. Um, little Danny, the baby, six foot two now, but they still call him little Danny. But that's all right. Um, we were on the four-year program. We got separated. Uh, we're all four years split apart. Uh, it's really, it's good in a lot of senses that we didn't have to go to school together, uh, high school or college. Uh, we get along really well. I would have liked to have it a little bit closer, but you can't really redo it. So, you know, uh, my brother's. One lives now in Tampa, the other lives in uh, East Lansing, Michigan, and I, I really don't get to see him much, but we do communicate, and communication is one of the basics that I learned here through IDAA, through International Kids of Alateen. Um, my dad started his recovery 13 years ago. He hasn't had a drop since, and I was five years old at the time. At that five-year-old point in my life, I was diagnosed with diabetes, so it was a it was a real tough time for me because here my dad was, you know, drinking this stuff that I didn't have any clue to to what it was, and it made him just all funny and everything, and and he was doing like a lot of crazy things, and uh, and here I was strict, I was, uh, somehow gotten this disease, you know, that I. I I didn't understand why I had to give myself shots, take blood sugars, all the good stuff you get to do. You might not think a five-year-old would remember their father being an alcoholic, but I do. I have flashbulb memories, um, just like little things that that aren't so significant to the ordinary person, but just something that really meant a lot to me. You know, I remember one time I was in. Uh, the car, and I was in the back seat, and my mother was driving, and my um, dad was in the passenger seat, and we we just got finished eating dinner, and he uh, had a couple too many, and he got out of the car while the car was moving, and that really that that was one of the memories I remember earliest to my childhood. It's not a good one, but it, it's one that I remember. Uh, another time was in. It was just the simplest, it was so basic. I was in my bed, 
And five-year-olds like to get tucked in, okay? Whether they think they're all too old or not, you know, whatever it might be, I like to say my now I lay me, you know, I like to have my dad come in, tuck me in, you know, get me all set, keep the door open a crack. And, you know, my dad would always come up, or my mom would always do that too. They would always come up and they always say, now I lay me down to sleep story. And one time my dad stumbled up the stairs, and you can hear him pretty, could hear him pretty far away. And, uh, he came in and he, uh, he goes, I'm like, I'm ready for my prayer. He's like, alright, now I lay me, alright. And that's all he said. And he left. And I said, you can keep the door open a little bit, you know, to like let him know, you know, it's not a big, you know, I'm getting older. See, as the door closes a little bit further, you're getting older and older. I always like my, you know, that was a trademark. And when we were younger, we had the door all the way open. Now, now it was cracking it. Well, dad walked right out the door. I'm like, you can turn off the light too. Walked past the light switch. It scared the hell out of me. It was the, it was one of the scariest moments. I walked out of my bedroom, went downstairs and went to my neighbor's house. And they knew the situation. They, they understood what was going on. So, that was just like some memories I remember. Well, my dad went to rehab. Right after, I think, I don't remember if it was before, uh, yeah, it was after I went and was diagnosed with diabetes, I believe. Um, I thought everything would be honky-dory after he got home from rehab. It wasn't. It was uh, hell. And it was just, it was not anything. I thought he would go away, get better, come back, and just be a new person. Well, I found out the fact, and this took a long time, that alcoholism is never conquered. It's ongoing. It's to the day you die. That fact right there took a long time for me to understand. I didn't understand that. Um, But we, we were working on it. We were going. He was going to AA meetings. We were proud. We had arguments left, right, every time, you know, a lot. Now is my mom's turn. Um, my mom uh, is a codependent, and uh, and I just I'm really uh, I love my mother a lot, you know. And I didn't understand codependency, and this is a new thing to me. A lot of these are new. Uh, she, uh, I didn't understand what it was. Almost like I when I was five year old, five years old, and I didn't understand what alcoholism was. They told me what it was, um, and it, it got better. It, it it was just it was just really hard because I was home alone with my mother, and I don't know if you all know the codependence uh, traits, but uh, it's it's tough, you know. You get really annoyed, really, you know. Just it's it's hard to understand it. You just don't understand how they can be like that. One time. Uh, after she said I am a codependent, um, she gets these books and tapes, and I'm I'm 15, 16 years old, and I really don't want to listen to any tapes about codependency. <laughs> and I, I, for those of you who know who Stuart Smalley is on Saturday Night Live, that's like the spitting image, you know. 
lots of times I find myself saying to uh, coming upstairs. One, for instance, one time I I came upstairs. She's like, Dan, come here, come here, sit down, sit down. Have I told you lately that I love you? I said, uh, no. I, lo- I love you too, you know? And it was cool like that. And she goes, you know, I have something I want to share with you. And I go, and I knew I was in for it, you know? She, she got, like, the Courage to Change book out, and she started getting the daily affirmations, like, lists of them. I've never seen a woman with so many books, like, for each day. Anyway, she said, I want to I want to read you something. You're, I'm 15 years old, right? Okay. And I really want to hear this. This is how it basically starts off. I, I think almost everyone starts, well, it sounds a lot like, um, it, it's like, you love yourself. You will do good things today. You will take a bath. And just like things that I wouldn't understand, you know, I was like trying to comprehend what the heck this did for her, alright? I mean, it was the basic necessities of life, alright? You just need to do it, yeah. It, it, you don't start the day out and say, I want to have a bad day, you know? Anyways. She always tells me how much she loves me, and how much she loves herself. I think that's great. I, you know, I give a girl... When she starts saying she loves herself, that's a good sign. Because when you know the codependent, it's just... It, it, it's like... It changes like the wind, okay? You can go from one extreme to the other. Anyways, she says it's very therapeutic, and... Whatever floats your boat, Mom, all right? That's... But anyway, the thing is, is we all find our ways to do what we think to make us feel better. My dad needed to go to rehab. My dad needed AA. My mom needed the Courage to Change book. My mom needed the little retarded tapes that she'd play. I needed, I needed something for me, and that was Alateen, and just to be able to relate to people about how much you can relate, just how much you can relate with one another. I mean, this group of table, right, this table right here and right over there, I mean, we just like bond. It's just like an instant bonding, and for the new people, it's growing every year. I mean, we started with, uh, you know, you know the, the, the numbers and everything, but It just meant so much to me. But here we are today. I'm going to read this now. I wrote this. Uh, But here we are today. And if it wasn't for Alateen, if it wasn't for the friends I made, uh, I I wouldn't be here, I don't think. If it wasn't for my parents, I definitely wouldn't be here. (laughs) You You could thank them because, well, you can thank them and you can have a little... I don't know. 
I don't know if animosity would be the word, but just like I thank them because I think every single teenager should be able to experience this, but they can't. I will be here next year and the year after that and the year after that. I will try to come as much as I can. This group means the most to me. I will never forget half these people. I mean, we just bond like you wouldn't believe. Grant is, like he said, one of, he's one of my best friends. Um, this year I'm going to college, though. I'm leaving home. I've been looking for this for a long time. But you know what? I was thinking, you know, my parents are probably thinking the same damn thing. Because, you know, I'm the last of the three kids, so I'm out of here. But I want I want you to know, Mom and Dad, I love you very, very much. Uh, I'm proud of you, Dad. I'm proud of you, Mom. And uh, thank you. Is that wonderful? Can I can I join our team? I feel like joining our team. I want to join our team. Mary, come over here. Well, this is not, this is just, uh, this is, this is great. But, but, uh, I want to join other team. I want to join. I want, honestly, I admit it. I admit it. Uh, uh, I feel like a, I feel like you now. I feel like, I feel like a child. Uh, however, we have another surprise for you. We have the main speaker for the Alanon. Okay, hold on a second. Yeah. Could, could you? Dr. Donald, Donald, where's Donald? My friend, oh yes, Capasa, Mira. And, uh, I came to her and asked her, I said, could you give me your curriculum vitae? <laughs> Did I pronounce right? Curriculum vitae. And, and she know what she wrote to me? This is what she wrote to me. Carol Sexton, a woman. I will, ha- I will add a beautiful woman. A wife. A mother. A, phys- uh, a physician and a grateful member of Aranon. And with that marvelous uh, qualification, I introduce you, Carol.
Hi, I'm Carol S. from Spokane, and I'm a grateful member of Al-Anon. And this is a big group. <laughs> you know, growing up, I had a great uncle who told me, you can be Miss America. I had a mother who wanted me to be in dance recitals and piano recitals, and I did all that, and I was in lots of plays, and I did lots of things. Everybody clapped. And I got to be very good in school, and I got, you know, lots of people stand up and clap, stuff like that. But, you know, I wanted to be in the junior league. I wanted to be in the country club. I wanted to be a member of the auxiliary. I wanted to be like an elder in the church. I didn't have a member of Al-Anon on my list. <laughs> In fact, I didn't know what it was. And it's with a lot of... The journey of becoming an Al-Anon is not the most fun, as most of you guys know. I'll, I'll start with... The reason I get to be an Al-Anon is because I married a guy named Bob. Bob's not here tonight. Um, he's on this planet, though. That's good. Um, we'll get into that later. But um, when I met Bob, he used less than any guy I had ever dated. I thought, I got a good one here. He was, you know, when I was 15 years old, I wrote in my diary, what is it about me? I, every guy I seem to attract is an addict or an alcoholic. Fifteen in my diary. It took me till I was at least 29 years old to answer that question. But that's okay. That's, that's, pretty, that's pretty quick learning. I'm <laughs> showing in this program. <laughs> you know. But it was amazing to me that I would choose an alcoholic. There was no alcohol in my family growing up. Nobody drank. In fact, my dad was told by his father to drink a little wine after dinner because he was a little uptight. And he didn't like that. You know, so he'd kind of sit there wincing as he drank a little bit of port wine. Well, I've tasted port wine. I would wince, too. Didn't like it. <laughs> but, I mean, when I was, I came through the 70s in high school, um, early 80s in medical school. Um, drugs were everywhere. I mean, I was, people would ask me if I wanted to drop acid when I was sitting in the, you know, lunchroom in high school. And in college, people, there was just lots of drugs. And in medical school, it was like, there were the straight people and the people who weren't straight. And um, there were two very distinct groups. And like I said, my husband, this guy that I met, you know, was going to marry, um, he used less than anybody. And I was really, really surprised and shocked. And I missed all the signals. The signals were there. I just want to tell you some of the things I missed. Alanons have this great, um, we see what we want to see. We hear what we want to hear. And I definitely did. Uh, little things I missed along the way. After we got married and we were going to move up to um, Tacoma, to I was going to do my residency in Seattle. And, of course, since I was going to have... You know, he was going to be working, and I was just going to be doing a residency. So I thought, we'd live in Tacoma, and I'd commute to Seattle. That makes sense? You know, Bob's going to be working in Tacoma. This makes sense, right? I'm, 
I missed that one totally along the way, you know, that somehow I had a hard job too, but I was supposed to. Got that? So here we are getting ready to go on this big trip, and we've got the rider truck or whatever it was all packed up with all of our early garage sale furniture. No, why we're moving this, God only knows. So Bob comes up to me. I'm a, I'm a doctor by now, and um, he's saying, well, Carol, prescribe me some amphetamines for the trip. <laughs> I said, uh, what? <laughs> you know, I've been on lots of trips with my family. We have never taken amphetamines. <laughs> M&M's? <laughs> Peanut M&M's, yeah. That's, that's good. You know, punch, something like that, you know, but never amphetamines. He said, well, yeah. He said, I want to drive straight through and I want to be awake. We are going from Dallas, well, from Shreveport to Dallas, Texas, to Tacoma, Washington. We're going straight through. I'm going, huh? But, well, I said, you know, well, why do you need, you know, amphetamines? Well, I need to stay awake. Okay. Uh, no, I'm not going to do that. You know, this is like, it did pass me by. This, this is, hey, we're cool. These are the 70s. These are the early 80s. Very early 80s. And um, so we go on this trip, and he does, like, a lot of no-dos and drinks Coca-Cola and stops, you know, to every hour to buy another Coca-Cola and to get rid of the other Coca-Cola and lots of no-dos. So I'm going on this trip going, this is strange. This is very strange. The next one that passed me by was... Um, one day, I had some surgery, and my surgeon gave me, like, 20 Percocets in a little bottle. Well, you know, I got through my surgery. I took a half a Percocet. I hallucinated and was talking to my dead grandmother. That's, I am a cheap drunk. I don't do well with chemicals. And so I just kind of put them in the cabinet. Well, a couple months later, um, Bob comes and he says, I've got this bad, bad headache. And I said, well, take a Percocet. You know, that'll help. He said, I already took four. <laughs> I just kind of looked at him. I said, well, that's a lot, honey. That must be a really bad headache. <laughs> he assured me it was. You know? Like, okay. The one that really got me, you know, denial, denial is a part of our stuff, you know. It, it just didn't make any sense to me. Um, Bob comes home. He was an anesthesiologist, and I was an anesthesiology resident. And... Um, he came home one, I came home one day, and there was this 20cc syringe with blue liquid in it in the butter keeper. <laughs> Sound good? Okay. Hey, Bob, what's in the butter keeper? <laughs> he says it's cocaine. Yeah. This is in the early 80s. You've got to remember, cocaine was not a bad drug in the early 80s. This was something we used. Um, in, it was sitting in little vials in the induction room where I did my anesthesia training. And, you know, we stuck little swabs in it and stuck it in people's noses and stuff and made them numb. And I said, well, you know, what's a, why do you have cocaine in Butterkeeper? He says, well, I have a stuffy nose. <laughs> I say, well, it'll help that. <laughs> I'm a doctor. I know this. That'll help. Yeah, sure. So, so I said, well, be sure not to use too much. You know, it can really hurt your nasal septum. 
you know, because I'm so helpful. You understand? I'm just so helpful. I was raised to be helpful. I was raised to be kind. I was raised to take care of people, and this is what I did. I did it very well. And um, it was totally okay for these things to be going on. It did not cross my mind at all. Bob drank normally. He used a little social drugs. When he would use marijuana with his friends, and going to the anesthesia, you know, like staff parties and stuff, all, you know, all the younger guys were using, and I was someone who didn't use, so I actually got accosted by the doctor's wives for not using. You know, it was not fun. I was called a party pooper. You know, all kinds. I'd go there and be nice and smile. I was trying to do that, you know, look like I'm having a good time. I'm good at that. And, um, you know, it it was just awful. So anyway, he, while Bob would have his friends over to do some marijuana, um, I'd go, I'd fix them goodies, you know, they're hungry. <laughs> I'd have a nice pitcher of Smith and Kearns and make my best chocolate chip cookies, you know, and I'd go shopping with my best friend. <laughs> you know, we had one rule with our shopping, you know, it has to fit in the car. That was, that was the only rule we had. So, this was my life of denial, totally not paying any attention to anything. Until one day Bob came home and he said, Carol, um, I've got something to tell you. And he looked serious. And he said, I'm using IV drugs. I'm using um, IV fentanyl, which is a narcotic. And he says, I got it under control. Now, what happened here was different. I didn't just kind of go, okay. A black cloud came in and went right in to my solar plexus. And I saw it go in. It's like it went in through my eyes and it stuck right here. And it took a long time to get that black cloud out. And I didn't even really know. I just knew that my life had just ended. And it really had because I didn't tell anybody. I didn't tell anybody. Who are you going to tell? This was back before there was anything. I mean, drug addicts were bad people. Bad, bad, bad people. And I was married to one now, and you know what that made me. It made me a bad person. So here I am in residency, and um, it's my R2 year, and um, I hide this really well, and then I can't take it anymore. Now, Bob's doing just fine. You know, I'm losing it. And because I'm keeping a secret, and this is really hard to do. So I told my attending I needed a month off. I thought I had an ulcer. Of course, I hadn't been to a doctor. You know, we don't go to doctors. We just take care of ourselves. I took a little tagamet, and um, I stayed home for a month. And he said, fine. You know, Carol, you have a big, big commute, and, you know, you're a really good person, and take some time off. They just kind of patted me on the back, and I went off for a month. It was six months later that I was back in my residency, you know, living the lie. I got really good at living the lie. And um, Bob turned in the towel, flew it, you know, he said, I'm using again, and I'm ready to go to treatment. And I've got it all figured out. He had talked to a guy on his staff, and he was going to go to treatment. I'm still in residence. You've got to understand, you know, residents have no lives, you know. And I'm, I'm holding up everything I can already. I'm already not... A non-person. So he goes to treatment in the hospital right across the street from where I am. Not only that, his parents have been invited to come and are 
planning on being there during this time. That and Chris said, "Sure, they can come. I can do this and have everybody here." Plus, his sister was coming from Boston. And um, needless to say, by the end of that trip, I had them kicked out of the house, and I was going nuts. I mean, I made such a fit in the in the, the treatment centers. It's it's in the counselor's office. There was no treatment for me. I went to a psychiatrist. I was suggested. My attending said, go to a psychiatrist. I did tell them at this point something was going on. They go to a psychiatrist. I went to a psychiatrist. The psychiatrist told me that there was no hope for Bob. I might as well divorce him. I was in tears. <laughs> Put it mildly. I was crying during every anesthesia case I did. You know, I just sit there, tears just pouring out of my, you know, as soon as the induction was over and I sat down. I mean, all the feelings just poured out. I was sitting there, I was crying during a place going, this is not normal. But it was July, you understand. You do not take off in July. It doesn't matter what's going on. So, um, anyway, he got out of treatment. And the the counselors there told me, oh, your husband's so wonderful. He took to the program like a duck to water. He will never relapse. So I chose to believe them. They had the better answer. And so I went to an Al-Anon meeting, and like they said, I went to everything they had, and there was a little bit of education there. But basically, I was dying inside, and nobody saw it. My psychiatrist said, go to work, that's good. My attending said, go to work, that's good. And um, the counselors there said, Bob's fine. We'll do urine. They can pick this up on urine. I'm going, yeah, sure. You know, fentanyl? Ha ha. So, needless to say, Bob relapsed almost immediately and didn't tell anybody. And, of course, I didn't ask. We were playing that game, you know, the, the don't, don't tell rule, you know, that one that's out there. You know, we don't talk about it. It was a whole other, my resume, everything just got screwed up in my life. I was totally, totally crazy during this period of time and acting normal. And just a lot of awful, awful, awful things happened during this period of time for me personally. And it was about a year later, I had finished my residency, just barely got out, had black marks. After I got out, you know, after the month that I needed to get out, then they told me to take three months off to go home and take care of my husband. You know, things like that. I was back at work. I was now out of work. Why? God only knows. So um, I did finish my residency, and we, we were partners now in anesthesia. And we'd kick each other in the bed every morning and be, you go to work. We're sharing a job. No, you go to work. I was scared. I mean, anybody who's been a new anesthesiologist knows, you know, suddenly no one's holding your hand. And you're going, I don't want to do this. <laughs> I'm terrified. And Bob was terrified because that's where he got all his drugs. I was terrified because I was brand new. We just, you know, finally one day he said, I'm using. And I had told him, if you ever use again, I'm out of here. So anyway, um, he knew and he told me that I would leave. And... Um, so he went to treatment. He didn't go to treatment. He just quit work. He just said, I'm not going in again because I'm going to die if I do. And he was right. He would have. Um, to go back a little bit. There were so many days when I drove home from work and I expected to find him dead on the floor. And then I would be, I'd be very angry because he wasn't. <laughs> you understand what I mean. I was so furious and so scared and had no one to turn to. It was really awful. So anyway, then he, when he quit and just got clean with everybody, because they were getting ready to come in on him anyway, because he was using more fentanyl than anybody else. And he just said, well, I'm using the Parkland technique, you know. And they believed him a little bit. But anyway, he, he quit work, and I'm still, see, I'm working there with these people. And everybody came up and said, how's Bob? 
Everybody loved Bob. And everybody came up and said, how's Bob? How's Bob? How's Bob? Nobody came up and said, Carol, how are you? And that was the hardest thing about being the wife of a physician who's in trouble was nobody seemed to see that I had a problem. But, of course, I didn't bother to tell anybody I had a problem either. You understand? I was well trained not to do that. So after about a week of everybody asking about Bob, I left. I just I just left. I found a job in Louisiana. I went home. Home to, home to Tara. <laughs> left him, said, divide everything up. I'm out of here. And he did. He mailed all my stuff down. I mean, he's just the nicest guy. You understand? <laughs> I'm out of there. Of course, his dad moved in immediately to take care of him. I'm going, I don't get this. Because what I told him, he was saying, I'll go to AA. I'll do everything they tell me. I said, no, if you don't go to treatment, I'm gone. And he said he wasn't going to go to treatment. He could do it with him. You know, he could do it himself. I had heard this for years. I can do it myself. I finally quit believing this. I was learning a little bit. (laughs) What I did in the next several months was find a new job in a new city and another alcoholic. An old boyfriend. And I realized one day when we were driving down to his camp on Turkey Creek, and he started drinking a beer. And I said, you know, I'm real uncomfortable with you drinking and driving. He says, just a beer, Carol. He said, I only drink two, and I always drink two every time I go down to the camp. I had taken a bottle of champagne, you know, to drink there. And that night, I drank the whole bottle all by myself. And I was sober. Totally sober. There was no way I could kill the pain I had that night. No way. My whole life came in. During this period of time, Bob had gone to treatment at a treatment program in Atlanta. And um, he would call me every week and say he wanted me back. And I'd say, fuck you, send money. That went on for about two months. During this period of time was when I started waking up that I had a problem. I was attracting addicts and alcoholics again. I was lonely. I was getting invited to all the right parties, going to all the right cotillions, doing all the right things, being accepted to all the right social circles for the first time in my life in my hometown. And I was the most miserable person you've ever seen in your entire life. It was awful. So anyway, one day he called from treatment. You know, they kept asking me to even fill out a spousal thing. And I said, no way, I'm not helping him do anything, you know. And one day he called and he said, I don't need you, but I want you. And I'm going to get well with you or without you. I said, okay, when's family week? <laughs> that was the first healthy thing he had said to me in many years. And I understood it. And when I went to family week, we went out in the woods during part of this time and sat on a log. And I'm really spiritually into nature. I mean, this is where God talked to me first. And we admitted to each other we didn't have a clue as to how to be married. We didn't have clues to how to live. We didn't have clues to anything. And we were going to start from scratch and we were going to find out. 
And we weren't going to let one stone pass unturned until we had found out how to have a good marriage, how to have a good coupleship, how to have sobriety, and how to have good health. And that was back in 84. And since then, Bob and I have been through about ten more marriages to the same person each other. (laughs) It's amazing what has happened to us with that, that surrender. Now, my treatment, I went to the family week there, and it was all about Bob. Once again, it's all about Bob. You know, it's all about Bob. It's all about Bob. And, you know, I'm not getting any help. I did get to meet some people from Al-Anon, and I started to know a little bit about Al-Anon. My first trip to Al-Anon had been way back in 81, and I went to a meeting where one person talked. There were 40 of us there. One person talked, and she said, ain't it awful, for 45 minutes. And I didn't go back. I mean, I I didn't have any time to waste. (laughs) You know, that wasn't going to do it. When I went to this treatment program, Al-Anon group, the the women there said we understand, and they did. And I cried, and we all cried, and I started back into Al-Anon. But Al-Anon wasn't enough for me. I did Al-Anon to the best of my ability, but, you know, I was a perfectionist, and I was terminally unique. I don't know if anybody else suffers from that. I told my people there, if I don't find an anesthesiologist married to an anesthesiologist who used cocaine and fentanyl, I don't want to listen to her. (laughs) I don't have high standards, do I? Well, that effectively knocked me out of getting any help for quite a few years. And then at one of the retreats they had at the treatment center, um, my angel spoke, and my big angel, Sharon Wakeshutter Cruz. And she said, anybody who's working 24 hours a day, seven days a week, is a workaholic. And I said, I've only been doing it for two and a half years. She said, come see me. (laughs) So I did. It took me a little while to get to her. See, in the meantime, I'd had three kids and bought a big house and, you know, done all the things that you do when you don't know what else to do. And... um, I was doing it all. I was superwoman. Bob was getting well. Bob had a nice 40-hour-a-week job and was taking good care of himself going to meetings. I was going to meetings, but I was being superwoman. So I went to treatment at a place in Black Hills for my codependency, and I very nearly didn't survive the experience because I got to see how raw I was. I knew nothing about myself. I knew everything everybody wanted me to be and nothing about me. And I remember one thing I did is I put a little sign on my back that says, I'm trying so hard to hear you, but I can't hear. I started learning about the rules in my family, and I started looking back at everything. I come from a perfect family. We were perfect. We were the only people who lived by the high standards that we lived by. I have two brothers. They are both, one's an orthodontist, the other's a physician. Um, My father's a retired now university professor. My mother's a high school professor. We went to church every Sunday. We took good care of our yard. We didn't get in trouble. We did everything right. I was teasing Lauren earlier. I had a shirt that said perfect on it. And I believed it. I wanted to believe it because I felt so awful inside. I was perfect on the outside. 
And when I learned, the thing that got me was when they told me, okay, Carol, one day a week, we want you to walk for one hour on the levee. My thought, well, I can go to Hawaii and be a prostitute. I can become schizophrenic. Lots of people in my family do that. Or I can kill myself. Whereas my husband used his chemicals to get to feel normal, to feel relief. I started licking my anesthesia tray, and I wanted to use them to die. And I knew if I went back to anesthesia, that's what I'd do one day. I'd pick it up, and I knew how to do it, and I'd be gone. So I decided not to continue with anesthesia. And while I was at this treatment center, I saw a form of therapy that made a lot of sense to me. It lets you feel. It lets you dance. It lets you sing. It lets you experience life and talk to people. Live people. Awake people. Instead of giving them drugs, I could help them get off drugs and off everything else they did. And my life opened up and I changed my whole field. When I came home from the treatment program and my husband's partners heard what I was doing, he wanted to commit me. I was the sanest I'd ever been. I mean, I was really, really awake and present and with myself. And nobody could understand that. My mother introduced me for years. This is my daughter who used to be an anesthesiologist. (laughs) This is four years into sobriety. You know, this is my worst pain came afterwards. During this period of time, I started noticing you know, in Al-Anon, when I did my inventory, it would be like, all I'd do is do the positive qualities. I couldn't find any negative qualities. I am not joking. This is, this is embarrassing to admit, but I, couldn't, I could not see myself. Finally, one day, I got down on my knees and I said, okay, God, I have a critical judgmental nature. I know that. And that's when it all started, really. You know, when I got down on my knees. And I know every time I get down on my knees now, it happens. Whatever it is that happens, happens. It's pretty awesome. I needed a lot more treatment. Bob's and my marriage started falling apart at this point. Totally. We went and did a coupleship program. We came to IDAA in Lexington, Kentucky in 87. And I couldn't, I could not belong with you then. I was so isolated. I couldn't connect. I wasn't a woman, I was a physician. And yet I wasn't a physician, it didn't work. I, I wasn't, I didn't know who I was. And I could not accept your warmth. When I came to IDAA again in 92, I was beginning to catch on. I'm a very slow learner when it comes to interpersonal things. It was very, very hard for me. I had to learn to take care of myself. And mainly what I had to learn to do was quit doing my husband's emotional work. I did all of my husband's emotional work. I told him how he felt. I told him what he wanted. I told him everything and he agreed because he didn't know what he wanted. It was just I had a lot of energy. He would take mine. And I just handed it over willingly. And I had to learn not to do that. And that really hurt our marriage. But yet it helped our marriage. Actually... What happened is he started becoming who he was, and I started becoming who I was. It's the most painful thing we've ever done. 
I had to get in touch with the fact that I had been sexually molested as a child. I had to get in touch with the fact that I had become a sexual addict. I had to get in touch with the fact I was, of course, a workaholic. That one was the easiest one. The, the worst one that I had to get in touch with was my cruelty. See, as a child, um, my brothers were very cruel to me, physically and then sexually. And um, I took it out on my husband. And I would take his addiction and what he had done to me. And I would throw it in his face and he would become small and powerless. And I'd step on him. And no one ever saw me do this. It was, it was years later and not that long ago when I, I asked him, I said, how did you put up with this for so long? He said, well, I knew you were smart. I knew you'd figure it out someday. I felt so small, so small. My rage at what the chemical dependency had done to me and our family just, just overwhelmed me. My rage at the fact, the main thing that he, got, he, that Bob took away from me was I thought he was supposed to take care of me. I mean, I'd married a doctor. Even though I was a doctor. He was supposed to take care of me. And I couldn't give that up. He was supposed to somehow make me okay. That marrying him would have made me okay. And it didn't make me okay. It was only my higher power who could make me okay. Also, getting well has cost me um, a lot in my family of origin. When I was doing everything according to what I'd been trained, you know, the no talk. We didn't talk about anything except, you know, finance or our toys in my family. Didn't talk about feelings, didn't talk about intimacy, didn't talk about um, relationships. You know, he talked about what you did that was wonderful and everybody applauded. And um, when I, this past year, I sent a letter to my family, to everybody in my immediate family, letting them know about the sexual abuse and the physical abuse and how I just wanted that information out there. And it cost me the relationship at this point of one of my brothers. And actually, it's pretty much stopped the whole thing. (laughs) And this is the pain for me of codependency and recovery, because when Bob got better, everybody wanted Bob to get better. Everybody wanted Bob to quit using drugs. Got it? You know, you kind of want that. And as he got better, he became pretty normal and pretty nice. And, well, he's already nice, but he became, you know, sober. It was really cool. As I got better, what it cost me was all the relationships that I had from my past. And what I was taught to do was to create my family of choice because I couldn't necessarily take my family of chance, family of origin along with me because they might not be able to go where I was going to have to go if I was going to get well. And that's why I think the codependency is the is the hardest disease to heal because we've got to be ready to give up everybody we love. It was only when I was ready to let go of Bob and he was ready to let go of me that we could have a coupleship. It's only been ready when I was ready to let go of my parents and my brothers and my whole first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth cousins, which I know, all of them that I could actually have a relationship with some of them as individuals. 
And the neat thing is, I'm going to leave just this summer. Oh, it's awful. You know, it's awful. Actually, I have the best. I have girlfriends now. Can you believe this? As as a sexual addict, I had no girlfriends. You understand? You know, I, I flirted. I mean, I was trained Southern, you know. I was trained to be Miss America. <laughs> I am not joking. And the way I flirted with you, so you'll know if someone does this to you. I would hold your arm. I would look at you adoringly. I would be so kind and nice if you were male. I would pay a lot of attention to you. And that's how I could get you. If, if, you, if I couldn't get you that way, I'd get you by how I dressed. And I made sure I dressed very seductively. Tastefully, but seductively. If I couldn't get you there, I'd get you by intelligence. You know, I'd wow you there. So I would get you one way or another. And it was it was a great, great result of what had happened to me. And, but I had to look at I had done these things. And I needed to make amends. I had to make closure with a lot of old men that I kept kind of hanging around in the background, you know, like sending Christmas cards and things. Um, and these men cried when I told them that they couldn't talk to me ever again. You know, they couldn't be a part of my life. Because it was only then that I could have an intimate relationship with my husband. See, I had all these other people kind of out there waiting in reserve. I never, ever dreamed that my husband's chemical dependency would open the door to all of my character defects and to the healing of those to where I could have. Now, I have three sons that I'm raising. Talk about, okay, I've got to do it right. You know, I've got... (laughs) I've got to raise men. How am I going to do this? I do it with a lot of help. I learned, I had to learn to parent. I had to go to school to learn to parent. I had to go to therapy to learn to parent. I had to learn to be a wife. I had to learn to be a friend to women. And it has brought me the most joy. I mean, I thoroughly enjoy myself now. I work 20 hours a week. I have more take-home money than I ever did. We're not in any debt. You know, all the things. If you had told me in 1983 that I would be standing here telling you I love my husband and I'm faithful to him and he's faithful to me, it would be incredible. And that I could come to a meeting like this with all of you people and be appropriate. I wouldn't have believed you. I wouldn't have believed a bit of it. My husband's doing a psychiatry residency right now in Salt Lake City. He's finished one year and has two years to go. And when he gets finished, I get to go. (laughs) The boys will be turning into teenagers. (laughs) It's been great. I didn't even mention half a million other things. I have stepchildren. I've had to learn to let them go, too. I've had to learn to let everybody go. And to see who returned and who really wanted a relationship with me versus my money or my facade or my seduction. It's been an incredible process. It's been a good process. Al-Anon has been the backbone of my recovery. Al-Anon loved me before I could love myself. And believe me, they loved me. They still love me. Even... When I show up and go, I don't know what I'm doing. They go, it's okay. 
The other part was I needed treatment. I was as sick or sicker than Bob, and nobody could see it. I didn't even have a disease that had a name. But I did find treatment for my disease. And I'm a very grateful recovering person. And what I want you to know, what I want to leave you with, is you can do it anything you want. With your higher power's help, you can get there. Rocky Horror Picture Show was one of my favorite shows during my sickness. But there's a song from there that says, Don't dream it, be it. And I've hung on to those words. Be it. Don't dream it anymore. And I pray that your dreams will come true as mine are coming true now. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you.